In today's video, we have an evidence-based guide to radicular low back pain and our friend, the disc herniation. Let's do it. So low back pain is extremely common in general. Around 80% of the population is going to have low back pain at one point throughout the course of their life, right? It's a big, big, big problem, leading cause of disability worldwide. What about radicular low back pain? Well, radicular low back pain is actually a little less common. It makes up about three to 5% of all low back pain cases. However, around three to 5% of all folks throughout the course of their life are going to have radicular low back pain. So that's quite a bit. Radicular low back pain and associated disc pathology can be extremely debilitating. It's also very, very scary for patients. They don't know what the heck is going on. All of a sudden they have this lightning down their leg. It's debilitating. They can't get out of bed. They can't go to work. They may have some weakness. They may have some difference in sensation. It's very scary. From a clinical standpoint, it's different enough from regular low back pain that a lot of students will ask me, you know, is it okay to treat this like normal low back pain? Am I able to weight lift with radicular low back pain and disc pathology? Do I treat this differently than my other cases of low back pain? And I think the short answer is it's pretty similar, but there are some key differences. So today we're going to talk a bit about those. I certainly see a lot of radicular low back pain in my weightlifting folks. So not just Olympic weightlifting, but people like to power lift or just weightlift in the gym, they like to squat and like to deadlift. Uh, more times than I've liked to hear, I hear a patient comes in, they're deadlifting, they're pulling off the floor. All of a sudden they have this intense pain in their back. They're kind of crippled. They can't get off the weightlifting platform. They go to the emergency room. Eventually take some 20 minutes to hobble out of the gym. Once they get there, get some imaging done, lo and behold, have a fresh disc herniation. So is radicular low back pain and disc pathology more common with weightlifting? I don't know that I have the answer to that, but anecdotally, I treat a lot of these and I think there is a bit, a bit of a uh, relationship. The other piece is that if you are trying to get folks back to weight training, we have to know a bit about how to treat these folks, whether or not it's okay to do things like squat and deadlift, so on and so forth. We'll delve a bit into the literature to get some answers there. So we definitely have a lot to go over today. We're going to be going over the prevalence of this injury, the history or clinical presentation. What do your patients say when they come in the door with this issue? What's a prognosis or natural history? Does it get better very quickly? Does it take a long time? How does it kind of pan out? Uh, what is the predisposing factors? What are the risk factors for this? Am I more likely to get this if I'm a male, female, age, so on and so forth? What is the anatomy of this? So what does a disc look like? What does a herniation look like? What's going on with the nerve and nerve root? All that stuff will go deep into that. What about diagnosis? When a patient comes through the door, which tests should I do? How about differential diagnosis? What else do I have to be aware of, right? And lastly, how do I treat this? So if you're a coach, clinician, and you want to actually apply some exercise for these folks, which treatments should we try? And the other piece is that if we're not making the progress that we want, what are the other interventions? How about things like injections? How about surgery? And when should we start thinking about this if your patient's not making the progress that you want? And before we really get going, I have an absolutely free cheat sheet for you. So it is an evidence-based guide to radicular low back pain. It's a PDF. It's got a couple pages in it, and it goes over all of the key points of this lesson today. So go ahead and download it. I'll put a link in the show notes in the description and follow along. This is also very useful if three months from now you have a patient that walks through the door with a radicular low back pain, and you're like, like, ah, man, what the heck did Dan say about X, Y, and Z? Just pull out the cheat sheet, you'll get it, review it, and then you're going to ace your uh, examination with your patient. So let's start this off by asking, what exactly is radicular low back pain? So it is defined as pain evoked from a dorsal root or its ganglion. The most common cause is going to be a disc herniation, 
And when a disc herniates, um, and I'm talking about what's called a non-contained herniation, and we'll explain the difference between a contained and non-contained. But when you have a non-contained disc herniation, the inside contents of the disc are shot outside, okay? And one of the issues with a disc herniation is they often occur in the posterior or lateral direction, more on this later. But because they occur in this direction, then those contents end up going onto the nerve root itself, right? And just the contact of the inside of the disc, the outside is a chemical irritant. It can cause a lot of those symptoms that patients experience. So most notably that terrible pain that goes down the leg, right? The other pieces are maybe an element of mechanical compression. Now, what do I mean by that? So largely when you have a disc herniation or maybe it's a large bulge, you'll have a part of the disc pressing up against the nerve. So it's not only the chemical irritation of the inside leaking outside, but the compression of the disc material onto the nerve that can give folks a whole bunch of bad symptoms. Radicular low back pain can also have associated radiculopathy. Now, these are a lot of really tough words, but essentially a radiculopathy is when you have radicular low back pain and there's going to be a neurological deficit. What that means is that there's either some sort of weakness. So you check myotoma weakness and you notice there's some sort of weakness from one side to the other, or some sort of change, usually diminished sensation one side to the other, or lastly, a change in reflexes. Okay. So if you have any of these neurological deficits with your patient, they have a radiculopathy with radicular low back pain. That's a mouthful. So what's the prevalence of radicular low back pain with associated disc herniation? Well, it's going to be a lot lower than let's say general low back pain or non-specific low back pain, but around three to 5% of all folks over the course of life will experience this. And that makes up about 5% of all low back cases. The most susceptible areas to this injury are going to be the L4, L5 disc and the L5 S1 disc. Now, don't know exactly why this is, but it is the area with the most motion. About 90% of all disc pathology and radicular low back pain comes from these levels. Unfortunately, the prevalence of hitting the like button and subscribing to the channel is a little lower than I'd like it to be. So if you hit that like button and subscribe to the channel, it's going to increase the prevalence of knowledge and positive outcomes with your patients. So I'm sure you've heard that folks tend to have asymptomatic pathology in their spine over the course of time, starting at a very young age. But if you haven't heard, folks will have asymptomatic pathology, so things that don't hurt within their body. You take a whole bunch of people without any sort of low back pain or any history of low back pain, and you do an image, MRI, you're going to find disc degeneration, you're going to find disc height loss, you're going to find disc bulging, protrusions, fissures, facet degeneration, spondylolisthesis. There's a lot of stuff that occurs within our spine. It doesn't actually give us any pain, all right? Now, can this pathology create pain? Of course, it certainly can. However, keep in mind, there's a lot of asymptomatic pathology out there. It's one of the reasons why we have to have a clinical examination when we diagnose these injuries, as well as, if needed, an MRI and see if they match, okay? It's important that we don't just take the MRI and take a word for it because we're not exactly sure if the pathology is related to the patient's pain. I'll read off some of these stats for you. So at 20 years old, 37% of these folks are going to have disc degeneration. At the age of 80, that goes up to 96% in terms of disc height loss. Around 24% of 20-year-olds have disc height loss, and around 84% of 80-year-olds have this. In terms of disc bulges, 30% of 20-year-olds, 84% of 80-year-olds. Disc protrusions, 29% of 20-year-olds, 43% of 80-year-olds. 
an annular fissure, which is going to be the outer wall of the disc breaking. It is 19% of 20 year olds, as well as 29% of 80 year olds. Facet degeneration, arthritis, around 4% in 20 year olds, 83% in 80 year olds. And lastly, spondylolisthesis, 3% in 20 year olds, but 50% in 80 year olds. So keep this in mind. It's very, very common for patients to have this pathology via MRI and no pain associated with these things. So once we get an MRI in our painful patients, it doesn't mean that that's definitely going to be the reason why they're hurting. However, I think that we just need to keep in mind that pathology does oftentimes correlate with pain. I think right now in the social media world, and this is largely a good thing, we're very positive and we're very hopeful for our patients and just let them know like, hey, this is an injury. It's definitely serious, although I think you can get better. Look at all these folks that have this pathology. They're absolutely asymptomatic. I think that's oftentimes a good thing for a patient to heal here, excuse me. We don't want to trivialize their pain process. In fact, Berjinky et al. in 2015, they performed a meta-analysis and demonstrated that MRI evidence of disc bulges, degeneration, extrusion, protrusion, and spondylolysis are more prevalent in adults 50 years of age or younger with back pain compared with asymptomatic individuals. So here's the thing. Can you have asymptomatic findings in the spine? Yes. If you have more findings in the spine, does that increase your risk of having pain? Well, based on this study, it does. Okay. So yes, just keep in mind that when a patient does have a severe injury, right? They have some sort of disc herniation, ridiculous low back pain. We don't trivialize it and tell them it doesn't matter. And I have a disc bulge too. The other nice thing is that these asymptomatic finding and MRIs don't correlate with a future onset of low back pain. So if you have these things at a younger age, it doesn't mean that your back is a ticking time bomb. And at some point it's going to explode because you have facet joint degeneration at the age of 20. If you guys like what you're learning about so far, then the next logical step is to sign up for the fitness pain-free mini course. I've made an absolutely free mini course and we go over four vital lessons for coaches and clinicians. The first lesson goes over how traditional schooling has failed us. Now, I'm actually a really big fan of education, and I think that physical therapy school actually prepared me pretty well to work with the average person. However, I really didn't learn how to work with the population that I want, which is people in the strength and fitness world. So I'm talking about powerlifting, bodybuilding, Olympic weightlifting, sport of fitness, and really people that just love working hard in the gym. And really my goal with the mini course is to help you understand how you work with this population to get them out of pain and keep them training. The next lesson is seven reasons why people get hurt in the gym. So it's vitally important they understand the injury mechanisms or why people get hurt in the gym. If we don't understand why folks are getting hurt in the gym, it's going to be very hard to rehabilitate those folks because let's say we do get them better, they go right back in the gym and get hurt in the same exact way they hurt before. The other piece is if we want to keep these folks safe for the long haul, we have to understand the main reason why these folks get hurt in the first place so we can keep them in the gym training as safe as possible and minimize that risk of future injury. Next, we go over four simple steps for getting your clients out of pain. Now, rehab can be very complicated. There's a lot of systems out there that make it very challenging to figure out how to work with your patients. 
However, it really doesn't have to be that complicated. So I go over four easy steps you can follow to get your patients out of pain and back in the gym where they belong. Lesson number four is how to build the career of your dreams and earn the respect of your community. Let's face it. The reason why you take these educational courses is obviously so you can learn a little bit more, but really the deep seated reason is because you want to have the respect of your community. You want your clients to come in, work with you and say, wow, Joe was great. He did a phenomenal job with me tell their friends and their friends come to see you. And after a while, you're very valued and respected within your community. So I'm going to teach you how to do that. Second piece is that if you know these skills, it doesn't always mean you have a ton of patients going through the door so you can work with the population you want to work with, right? So you may be the absolute best coach in the world, but no one wants to come and see you because they don't know who you are and they don't know how good you actually are. So we'll teach you how to get the patients through the door that you want to work with. And lastly, we'll talk a little bit about the fitness pain-free certification. This is the largest and most comprehensive educational course that I offer, but more on this later. So I'll leave a link in the description, in the show notes. Again, it's 100% free, really easy to download. Go ahead and do that right now. And now back to your learning. So what's the prognosis or natural history of radicular low back pain with associated disc herniation? Well, a lot of this information is really good for your patients to hear, but I think the other part is that the evidence is mixed on this, right? So the first bit of information from some studies, and again, link in the show notes, if you want to check out all the references they are all going to be there, but around 85 to 90% of these cases resolve within six to 12 weeks and without substantial medical intervention, right? So what does this mean? Largely six to 12 weeks. The folks that had that burning, terrible, ridiculous low back pain, this extremely, extremely um, debilitating as well as scary, will get better, right? About 85 to 90% of those folks. And that's amazing, right? Because people are super freaked out by what's going on. The large majority of them are going to get better very quickly, right? The other piece is that you can use this information to help patients know when they're going to start feeling better. And the majority of folks really start feeling better somewhere between six weeks and 12 weeks, right? However, like I said, this evidence is a bit mixed. So Constantino et al. in 2017 showed that only 55% of people with back-related leg pain had a resolution of symptoms at the one-year mark. So despite some research showing that these things tend to go away pretty rapidly, we also have some additional information that shows that some folks, the pain sticks around and that's unfortunate as well as a weakness. And I would say that's consistent with what I see clinically. It's not like everyone gets better. We don't have to worry about it. There's definitely a chunk of folks that have longstanding issues, both pain, weakness, sensory stuff. They'll say, Hey, my kneecap has been numb for the past three years. That does happen in some folks, right? So we don't want to trivialize again, what the patient's coming in with diagnosis wise, but we do want to give them hope and let them know like, Hey, this gets better just like anything else. The other piece to keep in mind is if someone has a large disc herniation and really the larger the herniation, your body is better and better at shrinking it, right? So if you have a very small herniation or small bulge, your body might not have to shrink it whatsoever. If you have a really large bulge or herniation then your body's a lot better at taking care of it. So over the course of time, especially the larger the herniation is, the more your body will shrink that. But here's the other kind of cool and interesting thing right? So the majority of folks over the course of time, their symptoms will resolve. Okay. And oftentimes spontaneously, meaning that you don't have to do anything whatsoever. They just get better over the course of time. Right. But for a lot of folks, they don't have any resorption of their herniation or bulge. So what that means is that if they have an injury, let's say day one, they have an injury day two, they get an MRI 
up L4, L5 disc herniation. It's this big, right? And then 12 weeks later, my back feels amazing. They do another MRI. Oh, it looks like the disc bulge or herniation is exactly the same size. Well, that can happen and that's not a problem, but do keep in mind that some folks will have some resorption, but other ones won't, but that doesn't mean your symptoms won't go away. Okay. More on this later. So what are some predisposing risk factors for ridiculous low back pain? Well, the first one is just going to be age. So you saw those stats before. The older you are, the more likely you are to have some degeneration of the spine and associated disc-related pathology. You'll find men in their 40s or so will start to have more disc pathology, where women, it's more in their 40s, or excuse me, 50s and 60s. Gender is also a risk factor with men being more common at a two-to-one ratio, male to female. Lastly, occupation is going to play a role. So at least women in physically demanding careers are more likely to have a disc herniation and associated ridiculous symptoms. This study was in the military population. So let's go over some anatomy of a disc herniation and associated ridiculous pain. So I have a spine right here. This is going to be L1, L2, L3, L4, L5, right? And between each vertebrae, I'm going to have a disc, okay? On the outside wall, of the disc, this is known as the annular wall. In the case of a disc bulge or herniation, what you'll find is that the annular wall will weaken and sometimes end up tearing. And you can have what you see right here, a disc herniation, okay? Now you can have a contained or a non-contained disc herniation. So a non-contained disc herniation means that the annular wall has completely disrupted. It's broken free, right? What happens is that the inside contents are now free to leak to the outside. If you have an uncontained bulge or disc herniation, you don't have the inside contents leaking outside. It's only non-contained disc herniations and bulges. So here's the thing. The majority of disc herniations occur in a posterior lateral direction. And all that means is that it's on the back and side of the disc. This is probably because this is the thinnest part of the disc, so if you have tears in the annular wall, and there's a bunch of different layers, we'll show you that in a minute. If you get all the way to the outside edge and that disrupts, now you have a non-contained disc herniation and the inside contents leak outside. Now, if you look at the posterior lateral side, right, of the disc, what's really, really close to that? That's a nerve root right here. So what ends up happening is that the inside contents leak outside and they form a chemical irritant because they're right next to the nerve. And that leads to a whole bunch of terrible symptoms in your patients. The other piece is that this bulge right here can push up against the nerve. And this mechanical compression, which kind of crowds the intervertebral space right here where that nerve lives, can give you some symptoms as well. The other thing that I want you to keep in mind, and this is something that's helpful that I tell my patients. So if you look at where the nerve exits, the intervertebral foramen, there's a ton of space, right? So the exiting nerve root only takes up about one third of the total space in that area. So if I have a disc herniation, disc bulge, if it's kind of poking into that nerve, it doesn't mean that there's not enough space in there, right? There's a ton of space. So you can have a pretty large disc bulge or disc herniation have absolutely no symptoms, right? And also when those folks are kind of freaked out that have those follow-up MRIs, they still have some bulging in that area. You just let them know like, hey, there's plenty of space in there. You don't have to worry about it. Your back is not painful right now. And I don't think you're gonna have a crazy flare up just because you don't think there's enough space in there. The next really important piece of anatomy is going to be knowing how to hit the like button. 
So if I look at my phone right here, we have my favorite channel. It's Fitness Pain Free. I just go over here and hit that like just like that. So easy, all right? But a huge part of identifying the right anatomy in your patients with radicular low back pain. So here's another image of the spine from the side. And I like this image because you can really see the intervertebral foramen very well. You can visualize the disc, right? The disc is called the annulus fibrosis right here. And that's the annular wall, right, that I was talking about. It's actually several rings or layers within the annulus fibrosis. And if you have a fissure of all the layers into the outside and opens up, you can have what we we're talking about before, which is going to be the inside contents leaking outside, right? The inside contents is known as the nucleus pulposus, right? You can also see the vertebral body really, really well above the disc and below the disc. And like I said, immediately behind that disc, that space you have right there, the intervertebral foramen, that's where the nerves come out, right? And keep in mind, those nerves only make up about one third of the total space. So even if you do have a pretty large disc herniation, doesn't always mean you're going to have a ton of symptoms, right? So right here, we've cut the spine in half and you can appreciate a couple additional pieces that we're going to talk about a little bit later in our presentation. So for one, you see the disc, right? That's the intervertebral disc right in the middle. You can really see those lines or rings really well. So you can kind of appreciate that you have to break through a lot of different layers until you get to the outside layer. The other piece is that the roof of the disc is known as a superior end plate. So it's kind of the bottom of the vertebrae above. And then you have the inferior end plate, which is going to be the roof of the vertebrae below. And sometimes you have what's called a vertebral end plate fracture. So the end plate will fracture and the disc will go up into the vertebrae above it. And that's actually a relatively common injury. And the studies we'll talk about later. So most of the research by Stu McGill, when he was compressing and flexing pig spines, one of the common injuries he found was an end plate fracture. And the disc would go straight up, right? And the reason why we need to know this anatomy is because we have to know whether or not we can strengthen these structures over the course of time, both before injury and after injury. The other piece I want you to look at and visualize a little bit is going to be the facet joint. Okay. So the facet joint is going to lie right behind the vertebrae. And if folks that have a decent amount of arthritis, they can have some thickening of that joint. And you can notice if you get enough thickening, it does reduce the intervertebral foramen. And if folks that end up having a lot of disc pathology and go on to get a discectomy, sometimes they'll remove a little bit of the bone in that area, along with the disc material, just to give a little bit more space. So what the heck is the job of the discs within our spine? So if you think about someone squatting or deadlifting, the jobs of the discs are to take that compressive force, the force that's going straight down and smushing the spine together and to dissipate those forces laterally. Okay. So it's a bit of a shock absorber and it helps to dissipate force. So you don't have so much stress going directly down in the spine. So let's go over some definitions of disc herniations, bulges, et cetera, et cetera. And I got to tell you, I think I've been using the wrong terminology for a long period of time. And when I was reading through a lot of this medical literature, uh, some folks would call a disc herniation where the inside context already leaked outwards, right? Um, there's different terminology for herniation versus bulging. So um, I thought this study by Farden et al. in 2001 did a really good job of defining a bulge versus a herniation versus the contained and non-contained like we talked about previously. And here's what the definitions were. In terms of a herniation, Farden et al. 2001 defined it as a localized displacement of the disc material beyond the limits of the intervertebral disc space. So the nucleus cartilage 
fragmented apophyseal bone, annular tissue, or any combination thereof going beyond the limits of the infertebral disc space. And if you look at the herniation image on the right, you can see it's kind of a focal herniation, right? So it's just a small bit poking outside the limits of that disc. Now, if you look at the disc bulge, which is the image right above that, and defined as disc tissue circumferentially beyond the edges of the ring, apophysis, apophysis, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, apophysis may be described as a bulging disc or bulging appearance and is not considered a form of herniation, okay? So the disc bulge, looking at the image above, you can see, yes, it's kind of beyond that ring, but a lot of it's beyond that ring. So looking at the definitions of it, the herniation just seems to be much more focal, whereas the bulge looks a lot more broad. Now we can go ahead and further define a disc herniation as well. So if we have damage from the inner wall all the way out to the outer wall, and we break through to the outside, and the inside contents leak outside, that's known as a non-contained disc herniation. And these are the ones that probably hurt the most because they cause so much chemical irritation on those nerves. Now, if you have damage to the annular wall, but the last wall on the outside of the annular wall is still intact, that's known as a contained disc herniation. And these ones, you can still have mechanical compression up against nerves, but you probably don't have that chemical irritation that causes a whole bunch of pain. Like I said earlier, these herniations are usually going to be occurring in a posterior lateral direction. So back and to the side, just because that area tends to be the weakness and there's no support from the posterior longitudinal ligament. Okay. Like I said previously, this ends up being a problem in a lot of folks because that herniation is pushing right into the space where the nerves live. And if you have the inside contents leaking outside, you get that chemical irritation, lots of inflammation and all those terrible symptoms your patients talk about. So let's define radicular low back pain. Radicular low back pain is, is defined as compression or chemical irritation of the nerve as it exits the spinal cord. Now this can actually happen in a variety of different regions and I have an image here just to show you. So the compression can occur at the fecal sac, which is the sheath or tube that surrounds the spinal cord. So think about the spinal cord. The first thing it travels through is that fecal sac, and you can have compression right at that area. The next place you can have some compression is going to be at the lateral recess. And this is bordered laterally by the pedicle, posteriorly by the superior articular facet and ligamentum flavum, and excuse me, and anteriorly by the vertebral body, end plate margin, and the disc margin. Okay. Lastly, we can have compression at that neural foramina, and this is basically where the nerve exits the spine. And if you look at our image here to the right, you have your central canal and the thecal sac is where it exits from that. The thecal sac surrounds the spinal cord and the nerve exits. You can have compression right there. Right outside of the thecal sac is going to be the lateral recess. And if we keep going laterally, then we have the foraminal space. So largely, radicular low back pain is usually caused by a disc herniation. So it's just like we talked about, a bulge or a disc herniation, excuse me, herniation pressing up against that nerve or having some of the inside contents leaking outside, right? That's the most classic way to get radicular low back pain. You can also get radicular low back pain due to spondylosis, which is narrowing of the spinal canal, neural foramen, or lateral recess. And this is just due to degenerative osteoarthritis. You also have facet or ligamentous hypertrophy, spondylolisthesis, or even neoplastic and infectious processes, right? So some of the ligaments can end up getting bigger, right? The facet joint gets a little bit bigger due to degeneration and crowds intervertebral foramen. 
The other piece we want to be on the lookout for that is definitely something you need to refer out if you, uh, excuse me, suspect that is going to be a neoplasm. So some sort of cancer. You can also have a lot of uh, radicular symptoms due to an infection in that area locally. The last and maybe the most serious cause of radicular back pain is going to be not hitting the like button and subscribing to the channel. So if you hit the like button and subscribe, you're probably much less likely to develop radicular low back pain over the course of time. So when patients get an MRI and they try to read it, it looks a lot like Chinese, right? Unless you're actually from China, then, you know, it's going to look like some other language you don't know, but it's very complicated. But having going over all the definitions and showing you some of the anatomy, let's try to make some sense of this. So this is just a, an MRI that I have for one of my recent patients. And what it says is at the L4, L5 level, there is diffuse disc bulge. We know what that is causing mild, so not that much, bilateral, both sides, neural, foraminal narrowing. So the space where the nerves exit, it's gotten a little bit smaller. There's mild bilateral, so a little bit on both sides, articular joint facet hypertrophy. So we looked at the facet joint previously, and you could see how close it was to the intervertebral foramen and can cause some narrowing as a result. And this contributes to produce bilateral, so both side, neural foraminal narrowing. Okay. At the L5 S1 level, there is diffuse disc bulge with posterior central disc protrusion. So think about the disc bulge compared to the herniation. The bulge is going to be a little less focal, right? More broad with a posterior. So on the backside, central disc protrusion. So basically there's a protrusion centrally located. And we'll talk about what a protrusion is in a minute, in a minute, excuse me, causing mild anterior thecal sac deformity. So we know what the thecal sac is. It looks like the disc bulge created an anterior thecal sac deformity. So pushing up against the thecal sac, contacting the traversing nerve roots bilaterally towards the subarticular zones. Additionally, there is a posterior annular fissure. So a fissure is just part of the annular wall being broken. The disc bulge is contacting the exiting nerve roots at L5 bilaterally. So the disc bulge is coming up against into contact with the nerve roots of L5 on both sides. There's mild articular joint facet hypertrophy. So only a little bit of hypertrophy of those facet joints. And that's contributing to produce bilateral neuroforaminal narrowing. Okay. So when a patient gets this information, you know, they think that their spine is completely messed up right? There's so much confusing stuff here. And I think if you can read some of this to your patient and just explain to them what the heck is going on, then oftentimes that's actually quite helpful and they know exactly what's going on. And all these big words don't mean there's anything dangerous. They're just using a lot of medical terminology and you can really simplify it for them. So we actually have a bunch of different types of disc herniations, right? So we went over the difference between a herniation more focal and a bulge, which is much more broad. Okay. So these are herniations and they're much more focal. And you can have a protrusion, an extrusion, or a sequestration. When folks have a protrusion, it means that the base of the herniation is going to be larger than the head. Okay. You can see that image on the top right. In an extrusion, it's the opposite. So you have a herniation where the head is actually bigger than the base. Okay. And in the final version, we have a sequestration, and this is usually the most serious of the injury. So what happens is that material came out and it detached, right? So you had disc material and it came out 
it bulged, it herniated, whatever, and it completely came out, detached from the rest of the disc, and now is sitting in the intervertebral foramen. And I really think this next stat is helpful for patients because a lot of these things can be very scary, especially the sequestration. If someone knows that's going on in their spine, they're like, what the heck? I don't know what to do. How do we get that thing out of there? That sounds really bad. Um, and this is actually quite cool. And this was a study looking at spontaneous recovery of lumbar disc herniations by Chun Chia et al. 2014. So the rate of a herniated disc becoming smaller over time was 96% for sequestrated discs, 70% for extruded discs, 41% for protruded discs, and 13% for bulging discs, right? So what the takeaway here that I think is really hopeful for patients is that the worse the disc herniation is, the better your body is at cleaning that up. Okay. That ends up being a really powerful and beneficial thing, obviously, and patients love to hear that. I think the flip side of things is that patients will ask, well, if I have a, a protrusion or bulge, how come that's healing? Not healing, excuse me. Well, I can't answer that for you. I can only guess that if you have, let's say, a, a small bulge or you have a small protrusion, your body might not have to do anything to heal it per se, just because the damage is not maybe great enough to cause an injury. And if it did, there's plenty of space in that intervertebral foramen. If I have a little bit of a bulge just poking into the intervertebral space, that might mean I still have a ton of space within there. So I don't necessarily have to shrink it you know, from a body perspective, right? But if I have a big old sequestrated disc I and mean, there's a whole chunk of disc in that intervertebral space and it's really crowding out the nerve, your body's like, whoa, this is a problem. Let's shrink that. Let's get rid of that piece, right? So here's an MRI of the spine. We've sliced the spine right down the center just to orient you a little bit towards the backside, right? To the right of this uh, image is going to be the person's back of their body. So think about the spinous processes that stick out and you can kind of feel them if you palpate along the skin and then towards the left side of the image is going to be the vertebrae and the discs right and then to the front of that so even further left would be let's say like your intestines and everything else in your stomach right so you can see the intervertebral discs between the vertebrae just like we kind of showed before and i put a big red arrow where you can see a beefy disc herniation right and if I had to classify what type of disc herniation this is, it seems like the base is smaller than the head. So this looks a bit like an extrusion. The other piece is that it may or may not be detached, right? And I don't read MRIs for a living, so I can't tell you exactly what this is, but at least you can appreciate what's going on based upon what I told you previously. So here's a, a patient of mine previously, and he ended up with a pretty bad case of radicular low back pain from a good morning that was really heavy. So kind of the standard, doing the good morning, felt something kind of go. After that was, oh my gosh, this is extremely bad. Went to the emergency room, got some imaging right right away. Wanted to make sure nothing serious was going on. And then maybe a couple weeks later, they find themselves in my clinic, right? Well, here's what his MRI showed. And here are the findings by level. So T12 to L1, largely unremarkable. Same thing at L1, L2, same thing at L2, L3. And then at L3, L4, it got a little bit more interesting. And there was diffuse disc bulge with mild facet hypertrophy and thickening of ligamentum flavum. No significant spinal, no significant spinal canal stenosis. Low grade left greater than right neural foraminal stenosis. Okay, you can kind of appreciate the disc bulge coming out and contacting up against the nerves as they exit. Okay, and I tried to put this arrow based on the level so you can, you can kind of see what's going on. 
At the L4, L5 level, there's a diffuse disc bulge with mild facet hypertrophy and thickening of ligamentum flavum. No significant spinal canal stenosis. Minimal bilateral neural foraminal stenosis, which is great, right? So you can see the arrow again. Looks like we have a bit of, I would call that maybe a protrusion in this area. Okay, they're not defining that. They're defining that as a disc bulge. So it's probably broader than I can see from this slice, right? And at the L5-S1 level, there's diffuse disc bulge with mild facet hypertrophy, no significant spinal canal or neural foraminal stenosis, right here. Yep, and you can see sticking right out there, the disc bulge again, right? And this patient actually, I, I lied to you, um, he came in and initially didn't have imaging and later on ended up getting some imaging. So there is a good chance the body kind of took care of whatever was going inside of the body. And then this is picking up a kind of healed disc herniation, right? Although um, there is a chance that some of this pathology was giving him his symptoms because he's a relatively young guy, right? Um, but it's tough to know. So here's the good old mechanism of injury that physical therapists have been scaring their patients with for years and years and years. So largely the idea is if I bend forward or round my spine, so if I go down to pick something up off the floor, especially if I round my spine, my spine would be bent whoop, this way. Sorry, my um, spine is pretty stiff here. So it doesn't bend well, but the idea is if I bend or flex forward this way, I will compress the front portion of the disc and it will shoot the disc contents posteriorly, right? So the idea is that you shouldn't load and flex your spine because that's going to put stress on the backside of the annular wall and create a disc herniation. The common explanation I hear from a lot of surgeons is to think about a jelly donut. So if I take a jelly donut and I squish it on one side, the jelly squirts backwards, right? In the case of the disc, potentially posterior laterally, and you shoot the inside jelly outside and you bathe those nerves in jelly inflammation, right? And here's the thing. I, I purposely didn't really delve into the medical literature for quite a period of time uh, about spinal flexion causing injury because it's just a huge can of worms. But I do want to give you the history, right? If you're not really up to date, and I also recommend you go back and read some of the literature, just try to figure out for yourself whether or not spinal flexion or spinal flexion under load is actually dangerous. So I think the person who ended up making spinal flexion, especially under load, a scary thing was probably Stuart McGill. And I tell you what, I really like Stuart McGill. I'm not trying to throw him under the bus whatsoever, but I think all the hubbub probably started when he had his books and he wrote his research, you know, back in the day. And what he did was he took uh, dead spines, right, from pigs initially. Subsequent research was done in pigs as well as sheep, right? Keep in mind, human beings are not sheep or pigs, and that's one of the reasons why folks are a little skeptical of his findings. And what they did was they subjected the spines to a tremendous number of repetitions of either compression, right, or compression with flexion at the same time, right? And they do thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions, and they just take note of when they have an injury and how many injuries they have, right? So Stu McGill's initial research found more disc pathology in the group that combined compression with flexion. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that he found a bunch of different types of injuries. So he found disc herniations, right, from this experiment. But he also created uh, vertebral end plate fractures, and he actually had some spondy injuries as well, right? And the important thing to keep in mind is that it's not like the compression group 
in a neutral spine position had zero injuries and the compression with flexion had a ton of injuries. They were very, very similar. Okay. So it's almost the same amount of disc herniations in one group versus the other. However, there were more disc herniations in the group that added flexion with compression and not just compression alone. So that's one of the reasons Stu McGill has said that it could be dangerous to try to lift heavy loads. If you're not trying to stay neutral, if you're allowing your spine to flex, flex, flex under heavy, heavy load, right? Particularly when you lift the weight off the floor, if your spine starts to flex at that point, his thought was, all right, that's, what's going to end up causing an injury. We should try to stay neutral. Okay. It's also important to understand that in sub in subsequent research, a lot of this was actually performed in cheap spines. It didn't show this. It's not like the flexion and compression model had more injuries. They didn't find it. It was the same amount of injuries in flexion and compression versus just compression. What I should also mention is that we talk a lot about flexion being bad for the spine, but if we're looking at some of these studies, when they add torsion or rotation or twisting to the spine, it actually increased the failure rate as well, more so than adding flexion. So if we're going to be scared of anything, I would, I would choose rotation over just flexion. At the end of the day, we're not pigs, right? We're not sheep. No one goes in the gym with a limp spine and does 40,000 repetitions of crunches over and over again with the weight on top of their head. Okay. doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So the other piece is that human spines can potentially adapt. And we'll talk about the research about this a little bit later, but when we go in the gym, how many reps of flexion and compression are we doing? 40, 50, 60, maybe a hundred, right? And it's sometimes with a heavy load, sometimes with a light load, we rest afterwards, right? So we're not subjecting our spines to 40, 50,000 repetitions. We're not doing it with a completely limp spine. Okay. The other piece is that our spines can adapt over the course of time. So a lot of folks have kind of said lifting with a round spine doesn't matter. You can adapt over the course of time. Right. And I'm not sure that we really fully understand that yet, but it does make sense in theory. What I will say is I highly recommend you go and look at some of these studies. I've left the, the links in the show notes, read through them yourself, use your brain a little bit. You can kind of come up with your own conclusions on whether or not lifting with a spine that's flexed is bad for you. The next question we have is that does lifting with a flexed or rounded spine increase stress on the disc? And we actually have a few studies that can help guide us here. So Lee JQ did a meta-analysis in 2022, looking at intradiscal pressures of folks either standing or sitting. Okay. And the reason why sitting versus standing is when you're standing, the spine is in relative extension, at least the lumbar spine. And when you sit down, the spine is in relative flexion. So in theory, if flexion increases stress on the spine, increases the intradiscal pressures, then sitting should actually be a little bit more stressful on those discs. And what they found is that largely sitting in a flex position is a little bit more stressful on the spine than standing, at least from an intradiscal pressure standpoint. However, the research is mixed on this. So this study was a 2022 meta-analysis. And what they said is that studies before 1990, there's a clear correlation. So largely if you sit in a flex position, increases stress on the disc, right? But studies after 1990 found no difference. And I can't tell you exactly why this is. I'm not sure if they were, you know, the study was done a little bit differently. Uh, the way they measured it changed, did the technology change? I really don't know. What was also very interesting is that once you have a degenerative disc, right? So if you think about the disc of an 80 year old versus that of like a 10 year old, the 10 year old, if they sit and flex, maybe that increases the pressure within the disc. But once you're 80 and you have degeneration, there's no difference anymore sitting versus standing, right? 
And the other piece to keep in mind is this actually varies based on the disc level. So L1, L2 versus L3, L4 versus L5, S1. So there's a lot of variance in, in intra, excuse me, intradiscal pressure sitting versus standing. It's not as simple as when you sit, the pressure in all of the lumbar discs goes up. And when you stand, all the pressure goes down. Okay. The next question we can start to ask and then answer is that does flex spine lifting cause or perpetuate low back pain? So a couple people looked at this, uh, mainly Saracini et al. in 2022. They're looking at manual labors with a history of low back pain. And they found that those folks actually lifted with less spinal flexion. And they also lifted with more of a squat pattern. And they went a little slower, right? And this makes sense. So in my mind, if you've had back pain in the past, you're probably going to choose a lifting technique that puts a little less stress on the spine. So if I'm going down to pick something off the floor and I bend only at my hips, yes, I'm going to put more stress in my spine and into my hips, right? If I bend my knees and get a little more upright, I'm now sharing some of that load with my legs a bit, right? Now, I don't know why these folks tended to lift with less flexion. Uh, there is a bit of research to show that folks that have had low back pain in the past, they typically lose flexion. Uh, maybe they hurt in flexion at some point, so they adapted my, more of a neutral or kind of a stiffer position. Uh, hard to know. But at least in this study, the folks that had low back pain, they actually tended to live with more of a neutral spine and more legs compared to folks that didn't, right? So hard to know. Did these folks live with that technique prior to injury and that's what hurt them? I don't think that's the case. But those without a history of low back pain, they're not lifting with a neutral spine and knees forward using their legs. Another study by Saracini et al. in 2020 showed that there was low quality evidence that greater lumbar spine flexion during a lifting task was not a risk factor for, excuse me, risk factor for low back pain onset, persistence, or differentiator of people with and without low back pain. So largely, folks that choose to use a flex spine position when they pick things off the floor doesn't mean they're destined for low back pain, at least based on this study right here. The other piece they looked at is if you currently have low back pain, if you choose to keep lifting with a flex spine, it doesn't seem like that's going to make your pain persist any more than lifting with a different strategy. So at least based on this research study, it doesn't seem to make a difference if you lift with a, a rounded spine or more of a neutral spine and your risk of having low back pain in the future. And this is the craziest thing that Saracini et al. found. And they found that not hitting the like button or subscribing to the channel increased your risk of lumbar disc herniation by fivefold. That's crazy. Better hit that like button. So this kind of brings up the question that can herniated discs heal and adapt, right? So going back to our anatomy. The top and the bottom of the discs are going to be the superior and inferior end plate. The annulus fibrosis is a stiff material around the edges, and you can see there's layers, right? The inside is the nucleus propulsus inside of the disc that's a soft material. So here's the thing. We had said the spine is built to dissipate forces. The discs in particular are designed to dissipate forces laterally. So what ends up happening is that inside the nucleus propulsus, there are high pressures. Because of these high pressures, there's not great blood supply. So the thought is this area doesn't heal very well at all, right? What's kind of cool is that the rest of the disc can actually heal. So both the vertebral end plate, so think about the roof and the floor of the disc, can both adapt to stress as well as the annular wall. 
So the outside periphery of the annular wall has some blood supply. It can actually heal and it can adapt over the course of time. Now, this is great news because what helps things heal? Applying stress, right? We can actually beef up the disc as well as the vertebral end plates by loading the area. Now, this study was saying that moderate stress is what's going to help you out here. What the heck does moderate stress mean? I don't know. I don't think that we've really formulated what the best type of stress is or the best dosage of stress is for the spine to get the results that we want. I don't think we have good research in terms of how long it takes for these things to adapt over the course of time. I'd love to know that because that would be pretty good. We can start to determine how much loading we have to do and when people can start to subject themselves to heavier loads over the course of time after an injury. And maybe if you're a new lifter, how long you have to go kind of light until you can start to push things a bit more so we can try those adaptations and get a nice beefy annular wall uh, before we subject ourselves to super heavy loads, right? So I think that ends up being the big question mark. Does exercise help these things to adapt? Yes, it does. But do you need 315 pound Jefferson curls in order to make this thing adapt? I don't know. Maybe, at least in my mind, we probably just want a moderate amount of stress, moderate loads, right? Moderate set and rep ranges, moderate exercises. So Jefferson curl, maybe it's perfect. Maybe it's too much. Hard to know. Your guess is kind of as good as mine. Let's go over some diagnosis of lumbar radiculopathy and associated disc pathology. When you do your history and you go through the clinical presentation, there's definitely a few things to be on the lookout for. So patients may tell you this, or it's probably good to ask these questions. So between 63 and 72% of folks are going to have paresthesia or abnormal sensation somewhere down the leg. 40% present with absent ankle reflexes, which is a sign of an L5 S1 disc injury. 37% have muscle weakness. 35% have radiation of pain into the lower limb. 27% endorse numbness and about 18% present with absent knee reflexes, right? So just be on the lookout for these things in your patients. So from a subjective perspective, these folks can have pain with coughing and sneezing just because that increases intradiscal pressure. You cough, oh, oh, that hurts my back. Uh, sneezing and heavy coughing bouts. So if someone gets sick, sometimes they end up with a disc herniation from too much coughing. I know it sounds crazy, but it does happen from time to time. These folks will often have pain in sitting, right? Not always, very different from person to person, but uh, depending on the study you look at, right? You can have around a 40% increase in pressure in the spine when you sit versus stand. So if I sit, if I increase the pressure in the disc, that may increase my symptoms a little bit. So these folks sometimes say, I'm not very good at sitting. Sitting kind of hurts me, right? The other piece is that these folks can have night pain. And this is important to know just because when folks have pain at night, oftentimes you start thinking, oh, this person has cancer. Uh, that's not always the case. It's actually pretty common with radicular low back pain. At nighttime, there's naturally a drop in blood pressure. Obviously, you're not moving. You're not exerting. Blood pressure goes down. And you have a temporary ischemia from sleeping positions, and that can increase your symptoms. So if you lay in a funky position and put some compression on a nerve, the nerve is already unhappy because it's not getting the best oxygen, right? It's already getting compression. You compress it some more, might get even more mad and say, hey, I want you to get up and move a little bit. I'm going to give you some pain, right? So common for these folks to have pain at nighttime. Steins et al. in 2018 identified several factors that correlate highly to nerve root involvement. They were pain below the knee, leg pain worse than back pain, positive neurodynamic tests like a slump or a straight leg raise, 
a neurological deficit, which means weakness in a myotome, absent or diminished reflexes, as well as diminished sensation from left to right. The last piece that highly correlated with nerve root involvement was a report of pins and needles. So that brings us to the objective portion of the diagnosis. What should your objective portion look like? Well, largely, we should probably do some sort of manual muscle testing to take a look at strength. We should do some sort of sensory testing, right, to look at dermatomes. We need to do some deep tendon reflexes to see if there's any sort of absent or diminished reflex. And lastly, we should be doing some sort of neurodynamic test, like a slump or a straight leg raise. I actually have a really in-depth video about the diagnosis of lumbar radicular symptoms as well as radiculopathy. I'm going to leave a link in the show notes so you guys can check that out. I'm going to go over these specific tests a little bit and talk about the sensitivities and specificities. But if you want to see exactly how I perform these tests, then I just recommend clicking on that link, all right, in the description in the show notes. So first, let's talk about strength testing or manual muscle testing. So Tawa et al. in 2017 found that the sensitivity of manual muscle testing was between 0.13 and 0.61, and the specificity was between 0.52 to 0.96. I think the, the takeaway there is that the, the sensitivity is largely terrible. It's worse than a coin flip. And the specificity is a bit better, but it's not perfect, okay? So all these tests in combination maybe gives you a better idea what's going on in your patient, but the subsequent tests we're going to go over, it's kind of the same as this. They're not perfect, right? So we combine them all. Maybe we get an MRI if we need it, right? Not at first. We'll talk about when to do that. That gives us a better picture of what's actually going on, okay? In terms of testing the myotomes, so you guys probably know this, but your spinal cord goes down. And then it branches out at different intervals, right? And at these different intervals, those nerves come out and they innervate muscles, right? So when we test specific muscles, we know which muscles are innervated by each level of the spine. So we kind of guess about which level is injured just because we know there's weakness in a specific region, right? In testing the L2 myotome, you just have to perform resisted hip flexion. The L3 myotome is tested by resisted knee extension. L4 myotome is tested by heel walking, so resisted dorsiflexion. L5 is tested by resisted great toe extension. S1 is tested by resisted plantar flexion. You can just do toe walking to assess this. And lastly, if you're assessing S2, that's going to be resisted knee flexion, so testing the hamstring strength left to right. The lesser known but equally important S3 myotome is going to be assessed via hitting the like button and subscribing to the channel. If you want to do a very thorough examination for your patients, you got to hit that like button and subscribe. So sensory testing is another important part of diagnosing lumbar radiculopathy. So you've probably seen these before. This is a dermatomal map, right? And here's the thing about dermatomal maps. Um, it seems like they're all over the place. One dermatomal map may look completely different than another, right? And this is from study to study. And then I kind of spoke to a bunch of students and asked them about dermatomes. And each one kind of said something a little bit different. So um, it seems like there's not a clear consensus uh, for testing all of these dermatomes, right? Uh, if you don't believe my dermatome, that's fine. You can go and find some other ones online. Uh, these are coming directly from... But again, the accuracy of these tests is not perfect. So Tawa et al. in 2017 found that dermatomes had a sensitivity of 0.47 to 0.73, and they had a specificity of 0.63, right? So the sensitivity is a little bit better than myotomes, and the specificity is probably worse. So again, not a perfect test. 
And we can assess this via pin prick testing. So you can use a pin or let's say the end of a paper clip and kind of poke one person's leg on the left, then the right and see if there's a different side to side. You can also brush the leg with the back of the hand. We can look at light touch, maybe assess via a cotton ball, something along those lines. And the idea is you're just assessing from side to side. So if we want to assess the L2 dermatome, we will be trying to touch somewhere on the upper thigh, L3, somewhere around the knee. And basically, we want to see if there's a different side to side. Uh, this is typically graded on a zero to two scale. A zero will be considered absent. One is diminished and two is normal. So you have anyone that has either a zero or a one, that will be a positive special test for sensory testing of dermatomes. Again, like I said, there's a lot of a variety between studies. So I don't know what the perfect answer is here, but here's what I've read. To assess the L2 dermatome, you're going to touch the anterior thigh. To assess L3, you touch the knee. To assess L4, you touch the medial calf right by the head of the medial gastroc. To assess L5, you touch the lateral calf halfway down the shin. To assess S1, you touch the medial malleolus or the bottom of the foot. If you want to assess S2, that's going to be actually assessing someone in prone or sitting around the L3 to L4 vertebral level in the spine. Diagnosis of lumbar radiculopathy and radicular low back pain should also have some reflex testing, right? So basically you're taking your reflex hammer and you're dinging into the patellar tendon or the Achilles tendon and you're assessing the reflex left to right. Tawa et al. in 2017 found that reflex testing had a specificity of 0.6 to 0.93 and a sensitivity of 0.14 to 0.67. So decent specificity, terrible sensitivity. So again, all these tests probably need to be used in combination. And oftentimes we're going to get false negatives, false positives, all sorts of kind of bad information from these tests, which is kind of the only thing we have. So it's, it's still important that we use them. If you have a diminished patellar reflex, that's going to indicate an injury at the L2, L3 and L3, L4 area. If you have a diminished Achilles reflex, that indicates an injury at the L5, S1 level. Diagnosis of lumbar radiculopathy should also be looking at neurodynamic tests. So in terms of sensitivities and specificities, the straight leg raise had a specificity of 0.89 and a sensitivity of 0.52. So decent specificity, coin flip on the sensitivity. The slump test had a specificity of 0.7 and a sensitivity of 0.91, right? So quite a bit better on both. Pretty decent specificity and sensitivity. If you're going to pick one of these tests, then maybe you'll just pick the slump, but one has a higher uh, sensitivity and one has a higher specificity. So both of them are probably good to be used together. Lastly, I think you should take this information with a grain of salt. Basically for a lot of these studies, the gold standard of whether or not some sort of disc pathology existed was via MRI, right? We know there are a lot of asymptomatic individuals with disc pathology, right? So if we're going to be using MRI as the gold standard to assess if these special tests are any good, and the MRI we know isn't always accurate, right? So take these numbers with a grain of salt because oftentimes the gold standard is actually not accurate, right? And then doesn't matter what the sensitivities and specificities even are. Another thing that's confusing is that in some of the studies, they were looking for a disc bulge or disc herniation or disc extrusion, right? So you know that some of these are maybe more problematic than others. So these numbers get a little bit even more complicated just because they're potentially trying to pick up specific types of disc pathology as well, right? 
And lastly, I just think it's important that you know that other studies show relatively poor diagnostic values of these tests. So they're just not great tests. They don't have the greatest sensitivities and specificities from study to study. It's just different, right? And this happens a lot with research of special tests. Maybe one study comes out, shows decent sensitivity and specificity. Another study comes out, shows something completely different. This is kind of what's been going on with our neurodynamic tests over the course of time. So they can be part of our battery of tests, but they're not perfect. We can also try and figure out which disc level is involved within the spine based on where that pain is presenting in our patients. This research is coming from Humphreys et al. in 1999. It's old research. And I think just like all these other tests, take this with a grain of salt. It's one more piece of information to help you rule in which level is involved. However, it's not perfect. So I'll go ahead and read this to you. But if you have an injury at the T12 to L1 level, you can suspect there's going to be pain in the inguinal region and the medial thigh. If the injury is at the L1, L2 level, you can suspect some pain in the anterior and medial aspect of the upper thigh. If the injury is at the L2, L3 level, we can suspect some pain in the anterior lateral thigh. If the injury is in the L3, L4 region, we can suspect some pain in the posterior lateral thigh and anterior tibial area. If the injury is in the L4, L5 segment, we can suspect some pain in the dorsum of the foot. If the injury is the L5, S1 level, we can suspect some pain in the lateral aspect of the foot. Now, largely, most of these injuries occur at the L4, L5, and L5, S1 level. So commonly, you're going to see more pain in the foot than other areas of the leg. Although anecdotally, I can't say that that's been what I've seen. Pain's kind of all over the place. So when would you consider diagnostic imaging like an MRI? <clears throat> well, largely, these things aren't recommended, at least for the first six weeks or so. And there's two situations when you would potentially look for an MRI. So one is if some of these red flags are present, we're going to refer back immediately. They're going to take some imaging to see what's going on within the spine, right? And that's the first one. In the large majority of cases, this isn't going to occur. So usually you just treat your patients for the first six weeks or so. The second reason why you might get some imaging is if you're not making much progress at all in the first, let's say, six weeks or so. Then you may send back the physician and physician might recommend some imaging so they can start to consider something like an injection. And then further on down the line, if they're not making progress, they'll have that information if they want to consider doing surgery a little bit later. So largely, we don't want to get imaging right away unless there's a medical red flag. Then we go ahead and treat for six weeks or so. If we're not making any progress whatsoever, we can consider sending back the physician get some imaging to see if there is going to be an injury at a specific level, and they might consider either doing an injection or eventually trying surgery. So here's the thing. Let's say you do your clinical diagnosis. You're unsure of what's going on at that point. You send that patient in for some diagnostic imaging, and even at that point, things are still a little bit unclear. Or we're not sure which level is involved. You can consider trying EMG or nerve conduction velocity testing. This helps us to either rule in radiculopathy or some other peripheral nerve involvement. Now, keep in mind, EMG is still not perfect. The sensitivity is between 0.5 and 0.85. So take that with a grain of salt. It's kind of similar to a lot of the other tests that we have. But if we're not getting the information we need to rule in radiculopathy or which level, we can go a step further and potentially look at EMG or nerve conduction velocity tests.
You also might need a neuroconduction velocity test if you hadn't hit that like or subscribe button so far. Maybe you're not fast enough. You don't have good nerve communication from your brain down your fingers to help you hit that like button. I don't know. But anyway, hit the button, subscribe. You diagnose your patient with lumbar radiculopathy, right? And you think they have some sort of disc injury. Maybe that's a disc herniation. And you're not sure whether or not you should tell your patient. Now, why is that? So if you've worked with enough patients that have had lumbar disc herniations, this also comes from patients going to see the doctor and getting that diagnosis of lumbar disc uh, herniation, as well as nerve issues. It's often extremely scary for patients. And it may seem absurd, but I've heard all sorts of funky things from patients when they know they have a disc herniation and they may have some pressure up against that nerve, right? So patients will say, I don't think I can move because I'm afraid that I'm going to sever my spinal cord right? And you know, that sounds crazy, but that's one of the things that exists inside a patient's mind. Sometimes when they get a pathoanatomical diagnosis, excuse me, a diagnosis from either a physical therapist or coming from the doctor. All right. So there's a lot of fear and misinformation that's surrounded by disc herniations and associated nerve injury as a result. And I think the, the best example is when you go to Thanksgiving and you have your uncle Larry, and you don't like talking to Uncle Larry because he always talks about his low back pain. But unfortunately, you have to sit next to him. He's family, so you got to talk to him. And you say, Uncle Larry, how are things going? You know you're about to get an earful. Basically, he says, you know, my disc is killing me. I haven't been able to sit down in years. My sciatica is acting up. I can't do anything I want. And he kind of talks to you like it's your problem, like you're responsible for all of his nerve pain, right? So the thought is, if you're experienced with disc injuries is only uncle Larry, right? Who's had pain for the past 30 years and can't sit down because this, you know, if you have this radiating lightning bolt pain that goes down your leg, then if you end up with a similar injury, you might think, Oh God, I'm destined to become uncle Larry, the annoying uncle, you know, at Thanksgiving that no one wants to sit next to. Right. And obviously it's not true. Most folks end up having uh, lumbar disc herniation with associated ridiculous low back pain. Most of those folks get better quite quickly. It's just that um, people have this misconception that it's very, very serious. And it can be if there are any medical red flags, of course, don't get me wrong. A lot of folks do end up with these long-standing symptoms. But the other piece is the majority of people actually get better over the course of time. And we essentially know that movement is good and we shouldn't be fearful of moving after we have an injury like this, right? So we really have to kind of communicate this to our patient in a very careful way. So here's the thing. Patients often come to you because they specifically want a diagnosis. One of the things I do with all of my patients is I ask about their goals. What do you want to get out of this session? What do you want to get out of physical therapy moving forward? And one of the first things that most people ask for is an accurate diagnosis, right? So if we're not giving someone an accurate diagnosis, we're really not meeting their needs, right? I think the other thing is that being truthful and honest is important. So if I suspect that I have a patient with radicular low back pain, radiculopathy, with nerve root involvement and a disc herniation, potentially, I'm going to tell them that, okay? The big problem is that we have to be careful not to scare our patients in the process. We also have to make sure that any beliefs they have that are negative, right? They're going to keep them from moving in the right direction. So one of the thoughts is that once you have this nerve-related pain, it's going to get worse if I find myself in a position, I may sever my spine, right? Or if I, I can't move because I'm going to cause more damage. Uh, when in reality, we know that's not true, and it's actually important to get moving as soon as possible. So 
It's our job to give accurate diagnoses, but also to avoid uh, nocebo effect. We don't want people to stop doing things and give them a negative outcome because we gave them a pathoanatomical diagnosis, right? So our job is to de-threaten this condition without trivializing it, right? The other pitfall I see a lot of new PTs and even experienced PTs go down the pathway of is that they will give a pathoanatomical diagnosis and then afterwards say, but don't worry about it. There are lots and lots of asymptomatic disc herniations out there. I probably have an asymptomatic disc herniation myself right now, right? And this may be helpful for some patients, but other patients might think, well, how come my disc herniation hurts? And it seems like mine is way, way more serious than yours is. You seem like you don't care at all. And then we're not establishing the rapport and the empathy they want with our patients. So I think it's important that we just let them know that, yes, you have a very serious issue going on right now. It is very scary. It's very debilitating. But over the course of time, you should get better, especially with the guidance from me as a physical therapist. So we're trying to, we're trying to decrease fear associated with a diagnosis of a disc herniation, right? Without trivializing the patient's problem because it's obviously serious in their mind. So there are several things that we can emphasize in our communication to push people into a positive way of thinking that's going to help them progress over the course of time, as opposed to negative talk that may end up perpetuating the pain problem because patients have poor behaviors afterwards, like not moving. So the first of which is just to promote the body's resiliency with statements like nerves are big, tough structures with a protective layer of epineurium and dura matter right? Folks think that nerves are these fragile, frail things, excuse me, frail things like an electric wire. If you touch on that, it's going to shoot a lightning bolt down your leg. Not the case. They're tough. They have a casing. They're protected. The other piece to emphasize is that nerves can heal. So if you have a radiculopathy and you have some nerve damage, these things do heal over the course of time. We know it's a very slow process, but like other structures in your body, they tend to heal, right? We also want to promote movement and activity, right? Movement and stretching helps disperse inflammation and provides nerves with oxygen, right? Now, we talked previously that when you have a disc herniation, we have some pressure up against the nerve. It reduces some of the oxygen to that nerve. And if we're not moving, sometimes that creates more symptoms. So when we move, it does a variety of things. For one, it feeds a little bit more oxygen to the nerve, makes it feel a little bit better. The other piece is it helps to disperse some of this inflammation. So we're probably helping to decrease pain and promote healing if we move more as opposed to moving less. We're also looking to reduce fear associated with the disc herniation and nerve pathology. So nerve root ganglions only take up about one third of its, of its entire space. There's plenty of space for the nerve in the disc. So we talked about the intervertebral foramen earlier. Now you have a nerve root that travels through that area, but it only occupies about one third of the space there. So if I have a large disc herniation, it may compress up against that nerve a little bit, but the other piece is that it's not strangling the nerve, so it has absolutely no oxygen whatsoever. And the other piece is that it only takes a small amount of compression to cause symptoms, right? So if you have a disc herniation, maybe it is pushing up against that nerve a little bit, but it's not like the nerve is being strangled to death. It's just a little bit of compression. The nerve is very sensitive. It's likely to give you those symptoms down the leg just with a little bit of contact and compression.
The other piece to emphasize is that the pain that most folks experience down the leg is probably less related to compression and more related to the inflammation from that disc herniation. So if we have the inside contents leaking outside, that's going to create a bunch of inflammation within that nerve. And then we have a bunch of symptoms as a result. What's kind of cool is that the body is good at dealing with inflammation. So as that goes down over the course of time, even if the size of the disc doesn't shrink that much, we'll probably have a lot of our symptoms get better over the course of time, just because your body's taking care of that inflammation. Now, lastly, it's just very important. They're being accurate with our patients. Now, what that means is that if you have radicular low back pain, but you don't have any neurological deficit, so there's no change in your reflexes, no weakness and no sensation differences left to right, there's a good chance there's no damage to that nerve whatsoever, right? Probably have an injury to the disc, and that might be the reason why we have the ridiculous symptoms in the first place, but at least the nerve is fine, okay? We don't have any weakness. There's no myotomal, dermatomal issues, reflexes are intact, no damage. And it's actually quite nice for patients to hear. However, if you do have radiculopathy, so you have myotomal weakness, changes in sensation left to right, reflex changes from left to right diminish your absence, uh, then there is some sort of damage, right? So if you have those motor or sensory deficits, that's going to correlate with demyelination and axonal degeneration. Okay. Now, no one likes to hear that their nerves were damaged, but for patients, I think it's important. You just let them know that, Hey, nerves can heal over the course of time. They may take a long time in order to get better, but they can heal. So don't get so fearful that because you have nerve damage, you're never going to get any of that back. A lot of that can improve with time. Now, Butler and Mosley have some really good explanatory statements of nerve concepts. I will leave a link in the show notes if you guys want to check this out, but I highly recommend in your communication with patients, you think about some of these concepts. Okay. So if you're watching the video podcast, you'll be able to see this. I'm just going to read these to you. These are some concepts to emphasize in your patients with nerve pathology. So when talking about nerves, you want to emphasize that they're big and tough. They have a protective covering. They like to move, bend, and stretch with the rest of the body. So movement is good. They enjoy movement in general. A workout gives them a good stretch, disperses inflammation, and brings them a fresh blood supply. All good stuff when we move these nerves around, right? In terms of the idea of a trapped nerve, so even if you lose some space, there's plenty more. We talked about the intervertebral foramen previously. Nerves are slidey and bendy. They're almost impossible to pinch. It'd be like picking up a lychee with chopsticks, right? So if you take, a, let's say, a piece of spaghetti that's been cooked, try to pick it with chopsticks, it keeps on slipping out. It's slippery, right? It's kind of the same in your spine. Also, when you have an injury, these nerves are more crowded out or compressed as opposed to trapped. Like I said, it takes a little bit of compression to an irritated, sensitive nerve to give you a bunch of symptoms. Doesn't mean that nerve is being strangled to death at the moment when you're experiencing some of the pain, right? When we talk about pain and damage, you can say something along the lines of zings and zaps do not mean that the nerve is injured. It's more likely it is sensitive. Keep in mind, this nerve is sitting in a bunch of inflammatory fluid that just leaked out from the disc, right? And that makes that nerve super duper sensitive. And I tell patients, it's kind of like you had a bad sunburn and then you went into the shower and put yourself under hot water. Now it feels like your skin is melting off, but it's clearly not. You just had sunburn. And because of that, the skin is very sensitive. And now when you expose it to heat, it feels like someone's pouring magma on you, right? But there's no damage that's occurring. Same thing happens in these ligaments, right? They're super sensitive right now. Moving around feels terrible, but doesn't mean that you're damaging, damaging that nerve, right? If anything, moving is good. Okay. So most painful nerves are sore, but safe. OK, 
Okay. Because you have your pain doesn't mean you're damaging them. If the nerve isn't doing its job as well as it usually does, then just like muscles and ligaments, it can repair and recover, right? So just like we said previously, if we do have some nerve damage, we have myotomal weakness, whatever it is over the course of time, we know that can improve as a nerve recovers, right? In terms of unusual symptoms like night pain, night pain is normal. It is because of a drop in blood pressure and often because you fall asleep in an awkward position. So you don't have as much oxygen to that nerve, maybe a little compressed because of the way you're sleeping, you end up in some pain, all normal. Touching nerves report all they possibly can to the brain, sometimes weird and wonderful things. There is usually nothing wrong with the area you feel the pain. So people are going to experience zaps, zings, all sorts of sensations down the leg. They're going to get soreness, maybe some compression, some weird, weird symptoms. Patients tell you all sorts of stuff. And generally speaking, nothing wrong with the area that is normal. It's just a very wild experience that goes along with having this type of injury. Next, let's discuss a little bit of differential diagnosis. And the most important thing that we're going to go over is going to be medical red flags. So this goes for any sort of condition, but it's especially true for a radicular low back pain. The patient comes in and they have what looks like radicular low back pain. One of the first things we want to do is rule out more serious or sinister pathology, which basically means they need some other form of treatment. And also, oftentimes, if we don't perform that treatment right away, we have some serious long-term problems, right? I'm going to read you through this list. The first one to ask about is going to be saddle paresthesia. So basically, if your patient sits on a bike seat, any area where the bike seat covers on your butt, if you have numbness or tingling in that area or abnormal sensation, that's a bad thing, right? If you have a history of a major trauma, so if this patient just got out of a car accident, ton of low back pain, they probably need to go to the doctor right away, Okay. Other forms of trauma may be a fall from a height or direct blow to the spine. If your patient is having associated abdominal or groin pain, that's obviously not a good thing. Got to refer out. If they have a fever or swelling over the spine as well, not a good thing. If they're having urine retention or fecal incontinence, not great. Um, this may be something that's uncomfortable to ask your patient, but at the end of the day, you may save them from something that's absolutely terrible. So you have to ask it. I usually make it a joke like, hey, are you pooping your pee in your pants or are you not able to poop and pee, right? And patients usually just laugh. It's not a big deal, right? But I can understand that it's a little uncomfortable, but you got to do it. Are they having any worsening weakness, numbness, or tingling in the lower body? So basically, are we having progressive neurological symptom, excuse me, symptoms, the worst of which is probably myotomal weakness, and we'll talk about why this is in a minute. If a patient is presenting this way, then they need to go and probably get emergency surgery because of called equina syndrome. There's also a chance you just have a severe radiculopathy, which again, may need some emergency treatment. If you have constant pain, not affected by position or activity, that's worse at night, chance you have cancer, right? Obviously that's not a great thing. And patients can have a lot of pain at nighttime, so it might not be um, cancer, but there's a chance it may be. So if there are other signs point to that, again, just refer out. If you have a history of cancer, which is a big one that I often have in the back of my mind. So if a patient comes in with low back pain, ridiculous low back pain, and they have a history of cancer and things are not getting better over the course of time, I will refer to the doctor just because I want to make sure it's not some sort of metastases or something to the spine. Obviously, no one wants to have that. Um, so we're on the lookout for it, right? If your patient is having unexplained weight loss, that's another red flag. Go ahead and refer out, right? 
Um, the other piece too, is that if we're having symptoms of called equina, that requires emergency surgery. So these patients oftentimes need to go right to the emergency room. If you're experiencing this, if you say, go call your doctor, it might be a little bit late, right? So they need to just be referred right away to the correct location, emergency room for a lot of these, um, just to make sure they're getting the care they need. We shouldn't be continuing on with physical therapy if these signs and symptoms are present, right? Another medical red flag is simply just not hitting that like button or subscribing to the channel. This is a condition that requires emergency surgery. So hit that like button so you can avoid that. So when I was in physical therapy school, one of the things I was taught is that if a patient has severe myotomal weakness, then they should be referred back to the doctor when they have ridiculous low back pain, right? And the first thought I had was like, what the heck is severe weakness? How do I know if someone has, let's say mild versus moderate versus severe weakness, and when do I have to refer back to the doctor? So I have a few studies that are gonna to help to illuminate um, an answer to this question. But first I wanna go over manual muscle testing so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you've been to physical therapy school, you know what I'm saying. You might need a bit of a refresher like I kinda of did, right? It's been a while since I went over manual muscle testing. But we do have some pretty good guidance in terms of what is mild versus moderate versus severe. But we have to be able to grade people's weakness, right? So manual muscle testing is usually done on a zero to five scale. So a zero is no muscle activation whatsoever. If you tell a patient to dorsiflex and he can't feel a tip anterior doing anything and there's no movement, that'd be a zero. A one is trace muscle activation, like a twitch without achieving full range of motion. So again, you ask your patient, hey, dorsiflex for me and just a little bit of muscle firing. You can feel a tip anterior doing something, but you're not getting through a full range of motion. A two is muscle activation with gravity eliminated position. So basically if you have your patient lay on your side and you have no friction on the table, so maybe a pillowcase or something underneath their foot, ask them to dorsiflex without going against gravity at a two rating, they'll have full range of motion. But as soon as you expose them to some gravity and have them sit up and dorsiflex, they can't get through that full range. A score of three would basically be full range of motion against gravity. So see, think about patient seated on the end of a table, leg hanging off the edge, ask them to dorsiflex through a full range of motion. Looks like they can against gravity. As soon as you give them some resistance, they can't. That would be greater three. A four is going to be full range of motion with a little bit of resistance, but not quite as strong as the opposite side. So if the patient kind of suspects a bit of a weakness and you test from side to side and it's not weak, but it doesn't have the same strength as the other side and you can move through full range of motion with a little bit of resistance, chances are you got a four, right? And a five is just basically full range of motion, full strength, okay? So Kogel et al. in 2021 tried to answer the question, do you need emergency surgery if you have myotomal weakness? And does the amount of weakness dictate whether or not you need surgery? So if you have a severe weakness, do you need surgery? But if you have a mild weakness, maybe we don't need surgery, right? So here's what this uh, study did. So they basically took patients with emergency surgery after lumbar disc herniation with radiculopathy, right? And they took basically everybody. So anyone that had a mild weakness to a severe and the way they classified severe versus mild versus moderate was that a severe weakness was less than three out of five, right? So basically we can't go through a full range of motion against gravity and basically anything that's that or lower would be severe. Mild weakness was a three out of five. So these folks were able to go through a full range of motion against gravity, but nothing else. 
And mild weakness was anything where you can get some resistance here through full range of motion, right? And what they found is that the severe patients and the moderate patients at the one-year follow-up had a better outcome than folks that didn't have a surgery, right? So on average, they regained more muscle strength. When it came to the mild weakness, they had the same outcome long-term. So if they have a severe, if your patients have a severe or moderate weakness based on this study, then long-term, they're probably going to have a better outcome in their myotomal strength if they have emergency surgery. Now, keep in mind that this surgery was within 72 hours of the initial injury. Oftentimes, our patients, when we see them, they're beyond that 72-hour mark. So if you have a patient that's early on with severe and moderate weakness, based on this study, they'll probably benefit at the year mark by sending them emergently to surgery. It's just that we don't know if that's too late or not, right? So the results of this study said that patients with moderate and severe paresis benefit from treatment within 72 hours, the treatment being surgery, as they were shown to have a significantly higher complete recovery rate at the one-year follow-up. And the other piece is that they had a much better recovery rate of their myotomal strength compared to the control group that didn't get any surgery. In conclusion, they stated that immediate surgery should be offered to patients with moderate and severe motor deficits to increase the likelihood of neurologic recovery. This prospective data may have an impact on emergency triage in these patients. Like I said, as physical therapists, we, ge we generally don't see these folks in the first three days, right? So basically, when they get to us, it may already be too late. We're not really sure about this, but we do have one study that may help to illuminate this for us. So Peter et al. in 2019 tried to answer this question. So essentially, they're looking at people that had radicular low back pain and myotomal weakness, and they either gave them surgery in the first 48 hours or surgery after 48 hours, and they want to look at the shorter and longer term result of doing surgery either immediately, first 48 hours, or later. And the results showed that group one, so basically the folks that had surgery in the first 48 hours, showed significantly faster recovery of moderate to severe paresis at discharge and six weeks to three month follow-up, whereas there were no significant differences in the recovery for mild paresis. And what this study suggests is that if you have a patient with a mild issue, then you can probably delay surgery, right? We'll talk about how long a little bit later, but we can probably go ahead and say, let's see if this recovers and give it some time. Whereas if you have a moderate to severe issue, you may want to consider that emergency surgery right away, just because we know that we're going to have a better long-term outcome at the year mark, as opposed to waiting or no surgery at all. Peter et al. in 2019 also compared early subscription to the fitness pain-free channel versus delayed subscription to the fitness pain-free channel. And what they found is that the early subscription group had a 400% increase in their intelligence. So obviously highly recommend like and subscribe if you're getting value from this. So how do we best treat lumbar radicular low back pain with and without radiculopathy? Well, a lot of this information is taken from the National Clinical Guidelines for Non-Surgical Treatment of Patients with Recent Onset Low Back Pain or Lumbar Radiculopathy. So the first thing they recommend is going to be some information about prognosis. We spoke about this earlier, but a lot of folks are going to get better very quickly without doing much of anything, and it's probably good to stay active while you're doing this. Like we said before, movement is good for nerves. Let's tell people to keep moving and just let them know it usually resolves on its own.
The other piece that we need to do is to warn people about medical red flags, right? So all the questions I went over previously, so worsening symptoms, having some sort of night pain that doesn't resolve with any change in position, all that stuff should be educated to your patient just to make sure that they are experiencing those symptoms to go back to the doctor. There could be something more severe going on. Now, if needed, we can provide some more specific patient education, supervised exercises, as well as some manual therapies. Now, the reason why this is if needed is because a lot of folks are going to get better right away without much of anything. So largely, tell folks it's going to be okay. Let them know about the prognosis. Make sure they don't have medical red flags. And if things are not rapidly resolving, we can now get some more specific education, some exercise, manual therapy, physical therapy, so on and so forth. Another way to word this would be should do treatments versus could do treatments. And what that means is that the patient comes in ridiculous low back pain. We should be educating them and we should be pushing physical activity, right? And if they're not getting better, we can give them some more specific exercise or physical therapy. So what should we be doing from a physical therapy standpoint in our patients with ridiculous low back pain? So this information comes from our clinical practice guidelines from the American Physical Therapy Association, published in JOSPT, revised in 2021. Now, before we go on to discuss this research, I want to describe low back pain with leg pain. So essentially, they give treatment guidelines for folks that have low back pain with or without leg pain. So folks that have leg pain doesn't necessarily mean you have ridiculous low back pain. So I think all of these treatments should be taken with a grain of salt just because we're not looking at specifically ridiculous back pain. Are there some folks with ridiculous back pain in these studies? Sure. It's just that they're not all looking at ridiculous back pain, right? So they defined low back pain with leg pain as studies that specifically recruited patients with low back pain, buttock pain, and or symptoms extending down the leg above or below the knee were grouped as low back pain with leg pain i.e. this was clearly indicated in the eligibility criteria. So largely, they're just looking at studies where that's how they defined low back pain with leg pain, which we know is not the same as ridiculous low back pain. So take these with a grain of salt. So first, we'll talk about acute low back pain. So let's say someone has a very recent onset of low back pain with leg pain. Again, may or may not be ridiculous in nature. What are the best treatments for these folks? Well, JOSPT gave a grading of B that physical therapists may use exercise training interventions, including trunk muscle strengthening and endurance and specific trunk muscle activation to reduce pain and disability for patients with acute low back pain with leg pain. This is actually a pretty big gap in knowledge, right? I'm just going to read it to you. More research is needed to examine exercise training interventions for patients with acute low back pain with and without leg pain. There's a need for level one randomized controlled trials comparing exercise training interventions against usual care or other interventions to clarify whether exercise training interventions provide benefit beyond the favorable natural history of acute low back pain. So basically, we don't know if exercise is always better than doing nothing. And for a lot of these studies, and we'll look at them in a minute, they didn't have a good control group. And that's a problem because we're trying to see what type of exercise is best we're actually not looking to see if nothing is as good as the exercise, okay? And that's a problem. There's also a need for direct comparisons of different exercise training interventions for patients with acute low back pain with leg pain. We'll discuss this more a little bit later, but it's not like we have great studies to compare, let's say, nerve glides versus stability exercises versus McKenzie, right? Wish we had this research. We tend not to have very much of that. 
Efforts should be made to ensure that individuals recruited into exercise randomized controlled trials match demographic and clinical characteristics of those seeking care for low back pain. So basically, the folks that are coming in the door to seek care for you and me are those the same types of people that are actually in the research studies, okay? We need to make sure that the populations that we're studying are the same populations we're actually treating because we don't know whether or not those results are going to apply directly to our patients if the patients are very different in the studies, right? So the first study that we're going to look at, the clinical practice guidelines, is going to be from Huber et al. And they had an experimental group that was looking at muscle strengthening and endurance exercise. Basically, they're doing supine isometric back extensions and abdominal exercises, kind of core strengthening generally. The control group was just given advice to reduce activity and loading of the spine. So basically, you have an exercise group that was given strengthening versus control that just says, hey, take it easy. Don't load the spine too much, right? There were 52 patients with acute back pain with leg pain. Again, we don't know if these patients all had ridiculous low back pain or not. And the experimental group had a greater reduction of pain intensity after 20 days, which is around a two point difference, 1.7 on the numeric pain rating scale. So it looks like if we give these patients some form of some form of core strengthening routine, that's going to decrease their pain more so than saying, Hey, take it easy. Don't loan the spine too much. Right. And that's good. Seems like exercise is beneficial for these folks. Ye et al compared two different exercise training interventions. They're looking at 63 young males between the age of 20 and 29. So just keep in mind, most folks with ridiculous low back pain tend to be older, right? Is this the best treatment for older folks too? Don't know. They were diagnosed with lumbar disc herniation. And the two groups were general exercise or specific trunk muscle activation exercises. So kind of motor control, core stability exercises versus general exercise, go out there and do some walking, right? The study was three months in length, excuse me, length. Outcomes were assessed after the three month period in one year. And what they found is that there was no difference at the three month assessment, but at the one year mark, the specific, specific trunk muscle activation had a greater improvement in back pain and disability from the Oswestry Disability Index, right? And that's fairly interesting because, you know, should patients with radicular low back pain actually get physical therapy or should they just be given the advice to go exercise, right? And this study kind of showed if we give them specific targeted exercise, seems like at least at the year mark, they have a little bit better outcome, right? Because the thing is, we're trying to save healthcare dollars. My counter argument would be how many folks that are given the advice to exercise that are normally sedentary will actually exercise when they're told that they should, right? Probably very little. If they go to a physical therapist, at least they kind of make sure they get the exercises done. So how about treatment for chronic low back pain sufferers with low back pain? So we're just looking at acute low back pain. How about chronic low back pain? So folks have had pain for three months or more. So JSPT gave a grading of B. The physical therapist may use thrust or non-thrust joint mobilizations to reduce pain and disability in patients with chronic low back pain with leg pain. Another grading of B, the physical therapist may use neural mobilization in conjunction with other treatments for short-term improvement in pain and disability in patients with chronic low back pain and leg pain. And a grading of D, physical therapist should not use mechanical traction for patients with chronic low back pain with leg pain based on the lack of benefit when added to other interventions. So it looks like if you have a patient that comes through the door, chronic low back pain with leg pain, then choosing to use thrust 
and non-thrust manipulation mobilizations may be beneficial for these folks. The other thing that might be helpful is neural mobilization. I was taught that quite a bit in PT school, continue to use it to this day. Seems like that's also a useful adjunct in these folks. So I think this is also really important to hear too, because unfortunately, I think that we know a lot less than we'd like to know. So basically the evidence synthesis and rationale from the clinical practice guidelines for chronic low back pain with leg pain, a total of three randomized controlled trials comparing exercise training interventions to minimal treatment generally support the use of exercise training interventions for a patient with chronic low back pain with leg pain. One study examined a specific trunk muscle activation exercise program, while the remaining studies use multimodal exercise approaches. The studies do not clearly support one type of exercise training intervention. One randomized control trial with a large sample size supported the inclusion of postural exercise along with a multimodal exercise training intervention. Wow. We have a total of three studies to help us decide what type of treatment we should be using these folks, right? Um, I'm, I'm joking, obviously, but that's not a lot, right? I don't think we can really hang our hat on any particular type of exercise being superior. We'd like to see more and more research, right? The research right now is not as robust as we'd like it to be. So Jason et al. did a review article at 2021 looking specifically at people with radicular low back pain and peripheral neuropathies. The study was called Physiotherapy for People with Painful Peripheral Neuropathies, a Narrative Review of Its Efficacy and Safety. Now, the reason why I really like this article is because it was looking at folks that had true peripheral nerve sensitivity or radicular low back pain. We're not looking at a whole bunch of folks that have low back pain, and some of them have radicular back pain and some don't. Okay. And based on this review, looking at all studies are looking at stability and motor control exercises. The conclusion from this study was that stability motor control exercises might provide clinically meaningful benefit over minimal care. So basically if we tell our patients, Hey, you're going to do fine, just stay active versus giving them some of these exercises, we're probably going to have a little bit better outcome probably with giving them the exercise, right? Also, there's no evidence of superiority to more substantial treatment interventions, including general exercise, right? So we don't know what the best form of exercise is for these folks. Do we need to take them through a general exercise plan? Do we need to give them stability and motor control exercises, nerve glides, McKenzie? Not really sure. Okay. How about neural mobility? Is neural mobility, nerve glides, tensioners, something you should be giving to your patients after they have radicular low back pain? Well, they seem to reduce pain compared to no or minimal treatment, right? So if you're not doing anything, again, looks like adding some exercise, neuromobility in this case seems to be beneficial. However, there's mixed evidence on this, right? So some research is showing uh, that this type of treatment, so nerve glides are better than other forms of treatment. Other forms of treatment in other studies seem to be better than nerve glides. We don't have the research. We need to be definitive, Okay. And that's what this study came to the conclusion of is basically there's not enough evidence to make strong conclusions about neuromobility being better than other forms of treatment. So how about McKenzie? Is McKenzie treatment better than other forms of treatment for a low, uh, radicular low back pain? Now, when I was in school, my school really hammered that if you have a patient that has pain extending below the knee, low back pain, then the first thing you should do is McKenzie treatments, right? Let's see if they have a direction of preference. Let's try to push them into that direction of preference. Let's try to centralize their symptoms over the course of time. You're going to get them better faster if you do this, right? What I found to be very interesting is that when I did this literature review for the lesson today, there wasn't 
a lot of strong research showing that McKenzie was a great way to treat radicular low back pain. In fact, I, I kind of found the opposite, right? I found very few studies about McKenzie treating radicular low back pain. And I found a lot of research about McKenzie for the treatment of more nonspecific low back pain. Okay. So is radicular low back pain best treated via McKenzie treatments? I think we don't know yet, but let's dive into some of these papers to just kind of give you some more information about whether or not you need McKenzie for these patients. So this is a randomized controlled trial comparing the McKenzie method to motor control exercises in people with chronic low back pain and a directional preference from Mark H. Halliday et al. This was in 2016 from JOSBT. And basically, they were trying motor control exercises versus McKenzie exercises for their patients. The patients included had chronic low back pain, so pain greater than three months, and they included both radicular low back pain and non-radicular low back pain. So right there off the bat, I don't know if I can even use this study to say definitively that McKenzie would be a better or worse treatment for radicular low back pain because they didn't take out the folks without radicular low back pain right? So take that with a grain of salt. They also only included patients with a direction of preference, which initially they had 133 patients and only 45 of those patients had a direction of preference. So only one third of those patients had that direction of preference. So basically the other, I don't know, almost a hundred patients, you can't do McKenzie. Like that's kind of wild, right? So it's only a treatment that's potentially used for one third of patients. And the other problem with this study is they had no control group right? So what happens when you do nothing? Do those patients get better at the same rate? We, we won't know. This study basically doesn't answer that. You can see why I'm a little bit wishy-washy on McKenzie at this point in time. So at the three-month mark, they had the same outcome for pain as well as muscle thickness, okay? So no difference in pain or muscle thickness, although there are improvements in both groups. There was, however, a slight increase in the McKenzie group for the global rating of change, but this is a small difference, okay? Lastly, at the one-year mark, there's no difference between groups, right? So based on what this study is saying, we can't really say definitively that McKenzie is a lot better than other forms of treatment, specifically motor control exercises in the long term. In the short term, at three months or so, seems like it's a little bit better compared to uh, motor control exercises from an outcome perspective global rating of change, but also keep in mind that this study had no control and also didn't distinguish between radicular and non-radicular low back pain. They just lumped them all together. So I actually have a really strong direction of preference to go ahead and just hit that like button and subscribe to the channel. I think your pain will be centralized or go away incredibly rapidly just via subscription to the fitness pain-free channel. So give it a go. All right. So Albert and Manich also looked at McKenzie for the treatment of radicular low back pain. And they were actually using patients with mixed acute and chronic radicular low back pain. So this is good, right? Because we're actually using the population that we want to see which treatment is best, right? And they had two groups. The first group was given information, advice, McKenzie exercises, spinal stability exercises. And right off the bat, we're not going to get great answers here because they use so many different treatments. We're not really sure which one gives the most benefit. What I will say is this is fairly typical in a physical therapy outpatient setting because most folks are going to get information advice and a variety of different exercises, maybe some McKenzie, some motor control, some core strength, right? Group two was given information, advice, and low-dose general exercise to promote circulation, so get things moving a little bit in their body, right? And if we look at the outcomes, 
There's no difference in outcome measures. They use the Roland Morris outcome measure. And there's a 0.8 point difference on a zero to 10 scale for current leg pain in favor of the McKenzie group, right? So basically, if you give someone general exercise versus specific exercise in McKenzie, long-term, it seems like you have a little bit of improvement in current leg pain, right? But there wasn't a strong difference in the other outcomes, right? So can you say that McKenzie is much better than other forms of exercise? It's hard to say. Seems like specific exercise in McKenzie is slightly better, but to be honest, it's not a whole lot different from general exercise. At least in my mind, McKenzie is least it's not the only way to treat chronic or acute radicular low back pain, right? It could be a, it can be a very effective tool in your toolbox, right? You may find that some people respond really, really well to this. That's great. But to say it's the best form of treatment, we don't know that. So how about injections for the treatment of radicular low back pain? Let's say you have a patient and you give them some exercises. They don't have any medical red flags and they're not really progressing very much over the course of time. Maybe they get to the six week mark, they're not making any progress. They're dying. They want some relief really badly. We can send them back to the doctor to get some imaging and then they can give them an injection, epidural injection into the spine. Now, if you look at the image here, apologize for the folks that are listening to the audio version of this, you can see where this injection goes. So largely they're taking a needle, it goes through the spine and it goes into the epidural space. They're going to release some sort of anti-inflammatory medication right into the epidural space outside of the spinal cord, right? And the reason why they do this is that we know that there is neuroinflammation in folks that have radicular low back pain, and we're trying to reduce that inflammation, right? So the combined evidence based on placebo-controlled and active, excuse me, active controlled trials is level one or strong evidence for pain relief and functional improvements at one and three months, and level two or moderate evidence at six and 12 months. So this is a, a Cochrane review. So very high level of evidence, right? I know a lot of folks are not big fans of Cochrane reviews, but that's the, the study I took. Obviously, link in the show notes if you want to read it yourself. But basically at the one and three month mark, so if you have patients kind of fresh out of a lumbar disc herniation with radicular symptoms, then there's strong evidence to show it helps these folks. And if you have a patient that's further out, so six to 12 months out, it's not as strong, but still a decent research to show that these injections work pretty well for those patients, improving pain and, and excuse me, improving pain and improving function. So I generally don't have a problem whatsoever telling folks if they're not making much progress to go ahead and get an epidural injection because they're minimally invasive. And as we'll see a little bit later, they're generally very safe, especially when you compare it to something like surgery. Is surgery beneficial for folks that have radicular low back pain? Yes, it's actually quite helpful. So folks that have pain, if you do this surgery, it really helps with their pain and their outcome, right? So what is the surgery? Well, it's referred to as an open discectomy or micro discectomy. So an open discectomy is a little bit of an older surgery. The micro discectomy is a little bit newer. The reason why you would consider a micro discectomy is because people generally have a faster recovery and it's less invasive. An open procedure, they have to cut open the skin and go in through the spine to try to visualize a herniation, right? And microdiscectomy, they have a really tiny hole and a microscope that allows the surgeon to be able to do the surgery without having to really reflect back the muscle and poke through as much tissue, right? So what do they do with the surgery? So you have my spine here. If you're watching the video version, you'll be able to see this. Apologize to my audio folks. But if I turn the spine to the side, I can see the disc, follow the disc. 
this red little bulge here is a disc herniation, right? And it presses right up against the nerve here, which may be causing your patient's symptoms. So in an open discectomy, they would open up the spine to visualize this, and they would go in here and remove potentially some of the bone, some of the disc, and maybe some ligament. And what that does is it opens up the intervertebral foramen and gives a little bit more space for this nerve, hopefully reducing symptoms, right? And yes, this can be a helpful treatment for folks that have low back pain. So now the question becomes, we know surgery is effective, but what's the most effective? Should we try conservative treatment? Should we try injections? Should we try surgery? What's the best way to handle all this? Well, I think the first thing to think about is if your patient has moderate to severe myotomal issues, and you basically just saw them right after the injury, they may actually benefit from emergency surgery in the long term. Okay. But I'm talking about folks that are a little bit beyond that point in time or they have mild myotomal weakness, right? Should we do conservative physical therapy or should we do surgery? Okay. The spine patient outcomes research trial sport tried to answer this question. They took 501 patients with herniated lumbar discs. They compared surgical versus non-surgical treatments. Their surgical, uh, excuse me, treatment was open discectomy. The outcome measures they used were the SF36 and the Oswestry Disability Index. So both well-validated outcome measures for folks that have low back pain. Both the surgery and the non-operative treatment groups improved substantially over a two-year period. Improvements consistently were in favor of surgery for all periods, but that were small and not statistically significant, right? So if you read this study and you read that surgery wins at all levels, that wouldn't be fair because those results were not statistically significant. And what that means to me is that if you have a patient that does need emergency surgery, then it's definitely worthwhile to start with conservative care because we know that long-term outcome is going to be nearly identical. So we know that surgery as well as injections can be helpful for folks with radicular low back pain and disc pathology, but which one is better? So will be at all in 2021 look to answer this question. And they were looking at transferaminal epidural steroid injections. So the same thing we just went over previously. And they compared that against a group that had micro discectomy surgery. They were using patients with a disc herniation and radicular low back pain. And they were up to one year out from the initial onset. So not super chronic patients, but from zero to one year, right? Pretty big breadth of patients. Here's the thing. There was a substantial improvement in each group. There was no difference between groups. And there were significant complications in the surgical group and the surgery was much more expensive. Okay. And that all makes sense. So largely, if you have a patient that's not progressing with conservative care, we can consider an injection, right? Cause we know that it's going to be very similar in outcome to a surgery. And if they're not progressing, ultimately we can decide to do the surgery eventually, but at the very least we should try the injection because it's as good as surgery for most folks and it's much less invasive and much less costly. So when should we actually suggest surgery to our patients? We just talked about how conservative care is a way to go if someone has no medical red flags or severe weakness, right? Things aren't going well, we go with the injection, right? Now, your patient's still not improving with an injection. When do we start thinking about surgery, right? So before six months is suggested for surgery in patients with symptomatic lumbar disc herniation whose symptoms are severe enough to warrant surgery. Earlier surgery within six months to a year is associated with faster recovery and improved long-term outcomes. 
So if you have a patient that's not getting better with conservative care or injections, you might want to think about having surgery before that six-month mark-ish because if you have surgery before that six-month mark-ish, you're probably going to do better than if you wait one, two, three years down the line. We know that surgical decompression provides long-term, four years in this study, symptom relief for patients with radiculopathy from lumbar disc herniation whose symptoms warrant surgery. Another really interesting piece of information from this study is that it should be noted that a substantial portion, 23 to 20% of patients will have chronic back or leg pain. So a lot of patients have this expectation that when they have pain, if they get surgery, it's going to fix this thing 100%, right? That's very rarely the case for most surgeries, really. Some maybe, but a lot of them it's not. And at least with patients that get an open discectomy, about a quarter of those are still going to have substantial leg and back pain. So despite the treatment being beneficial for folks, it doesn't mean that you're going to get away with absolutely zero symptoms. It largely will improve what you have currently, though. The other thing I really tend to suggest is that people should hit the like button and subscribe to the channel before they consider surgery. Hitting the like and subscribe button really going to help you with your disc pain. And if you don't hit that, you might have to go down that route of surgery. So consider doing it. So let's break this down into a treatment plan. So essentially, there's a patient. They get radicular low back pain. How should we guide them through their care? Okay. Now, typically, the patient gets an injury, and if it's severe enough, they go straight to the emergency room, right? And from the emergency room, we need to rule out medical red flags, right? See if they have moderate to severe symptoms, and then refer that person to the doctor they need for emergency surgery if needed, right? Now, the next step is to have a follow-up. And the follow-up is usually done with a primary care physician, right? And for some folks, after they have radicular low back pain, the first person they see is the primary care physician, okay? So they need to have a follow-up because we need to assess for progressive neurological symptoms. So let's say the patient gets an injury and they go see the physician, right? There should be a follow-up in about a week to see if those symptoms are worsening. Are we getting more and more weak or getting more and more sensory loss? If so, that's a sign that we have an emergency situation, need to go to the doctor, probably get surgery right away, okay? If not, the primary care physician is going to see if the patient is improving, right? So let's say a patient has a disc herniation, radicular back pain, they go to primary care, primary care says, no medical red flags, come back in a week, let's make sure it's not getting worse, right? They come back, and it looks like things are actually getting better, right? At this point, primary care physician might say, you're probably going to get better. I don't think you need to continue doing much, right? Maybe give some advice about the prognosis, but say, hey, come back to me in a couple weeks if you're not improving. If you're doing really well, then don't worry about it, right? So the patient leaves. And if they get better, then they don't even need to come back, right? But if they're not getting better, they come back to the primary care, right? Who says, I think you should try some physical therapy now, right? So now they come to see you. And largely, once you start treating them, if they're getting better over the course of time, great, keep going, right? However, if the patient is not getting better over the course of time, we consider injections. So let's say you get the six, eight, 10 weeks, patient's not making any progress whatsoever. I may refer back to the physician and say, patient's in a ton of pain. Are there any next steps we can do with the thought that he's going to now do an MRI and potentially try an injection to reduce that patient's pain? Let's say they do that and they get the injection, they come back to physical therapy, and we continue with care after that injection. If they're getting better, great. And you send them on their way, eventually discharge them, and they ride into the sunset. 
And let's say they're not making progress. They're still having symptoms, right? Maybe they're getting out to three, four months out and they're still not making progress. At this point, I may refer back to the surgeon because at this point they may benefit from a discectomy, microdiscectomy. And the other piece that uh, to be aware of is that folks that get surgery a little bit sooner, so before six months to a year, tend to be a little bit better than folks that wait too long. So if your patient's still not getting better at that time, probably good to refer to a surgeon and the surgeon's going to be able to help out at this point, decide when to get surgery, if that's appropriate. The other important caveat is that oftentimes the physical therapist is as the first point in care, right? You may be the primary care physician yourself. So let's say it's a patient that gets, you know, searing, ridiculous, low back pain after deadlifting. They come to your uh, clinic the next day after the injury, you're assessing them. First and foremost, we're on the lookout for medical red flags. If there's no medical red flags, we start with our treatment. We closely monitor their strength over the course of time and make sure it's not progressively worsening. And if it's getting better and everything is improving, obviously we can just keep on pushing and let them kind of get better over the course of time. If things are not improving, we maybe send that patient back to the physician to get an injection continue with PT over the course of time, not getting better, then consider surgery, send to the surgeon, and then see if the patient is appropriate at that point. So now that you have some evidence-based information about radicular low back pain, you still need to know how to treat these folks. Well, I have a case study for you where I break down a patient with radicular low back pain, show the exact treatments that I use, and show exactly how we got back to weight training over the course of time. I'm going to leave a link up here. You should go ahead and click on that and continue with the learning.